Well, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. So if you, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to go ahead and turn over there. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we have Bibles for you. Uh, at the middle of each aisle, uh, on the floor, under the, under the chairs at the middle of each aisle, we've got Bibles that are for your use. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, nothing would make us happier than for you to take that one with you. And that would be the, your Bible. And we'd love to talk to you about anything that you read there. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, working our way through this letter that Paul wrote to his friend soon after he had founded a church in this ancient Roman city. Uh, this morning we're in chapter 5 because chapter 5 comes next. And you're going to see why that's important in a minute. Because you're not going to like what you read there. Uh, it's not going to sound right to you. And we come to it because it comes next. And we submit to God's word. And, and just going verse by verse through these letters is a way of making sure we're not picking and choosing based on what we like. Based on what sounds right to us. This morning's probably not going to sound right to you. It might not sound right to you because chances are, if you like the church, one of the things you like is the promise that the church, a good church, will offer to welcome all comers. The promise to take you as you are. That Jesus requires no precondition except your faith in him. Chances are, if you like the church, that's one of the things you like about it. This passage might not sound right to you if you were here last week because this passage calls for judgment. It calls for, Paul calls for the church that he's writing to to remove someone from the church. And last week what we looked at was Paul saying basically only judgment that should matter is God's judgment of you. The only judgment that should matter is whether or not you are judged by God to be attached to Jesus and therefore approved by him and and welcome and affirmed by him. But now Paul's passing judgment himself. What, how does that square with what we looked at last week, if you were here last week? Of course, this week might sound refreshing to you. Have you ever been to a church where you've been burned because the church didn't take sin seriously and cultivated a culture in which abuse was possible and never confronted? Then today, this picture where Paul calls on the church to kick someone out, might sound refreshing to you. It could be, and I'll pray that it'll be, a chance for you to reevaluate what churches could be like. It's a tough passage. We're going to read it together first. I, what I want to do is, is read the whole thing. We're going to read all of chapter 5. Then I'm going to talk a little bit more about how we're going to come at it this morning, and then we're going to dive into the details. So, so if, uh, having found uh, uh, chapter 5, would you please stand with me now in honor of God's word? As I read verses 1 to 13, this is the word of the Lord. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven 
that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, a drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So there it is. And the issue of the passage is, is clear enough. A man in the church was guilty of taking his father's wife. Not a lot of details there. but Pretty much everybody agrees on the gist of what's going on. It's most likely an ongoing sexual relationship with a woman that's married to his father, either now or that was married to his father, would have been considered by law at the time to be an incestuous relationship, even though there's no biological connection. And it was scandalous, even in the sex-obsessed society of Roman Corinth. It was scandalous. Now, maybe it sounds strange to you this morning that Paul would react so strongly to sexual sin. I I realize that, 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 that... Sex as an issue doesn't have the taboo anymore that it has at certain times and places. I want to say two things on that front. The first is that we shouldn't assume that that they had taboos back then that we don't have today. Paul was writing to Corinth, one of the cities in the ancient world that was infamous for sexual looseness. So his society wasn't that much different than than 21st century America. That's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say is that if this is something you're wondering about, why should it matter so much to Christians? I want to go ahead and put in a disclaimer for this morning. I'm actually not going to talk about that. Uh, Partly because we just don't have time. Partly because in two weeks, we're actually coming to a passage that is all about the Christian take on sexuality and why it matters so much. So I want to to defer questions about the significance of sexual sin to that time, two weeks from now. So if that's something you're interested in, save the date, come, be here, two weeks, we're we're going to tackle it together then. And the third reason I'm not going to talk about it is that I don't think that's Paul's concern here. He mentions the sin here at the, in the first verse. He doesn't come back to it after that. What he's really interested in here is the church and their response or lack of response to the fact that this sin was going on in their midst. So for today's purposes, we're going to assume the sinfulness of this behavior and talk about sin in general and how the church is supposed to interact with sin that's in the midst of its body because that's what Paul's really interested in. From here on out, that's what he talks about. And that's where some of the trickiest, most mysterious, and counterintuitive instruction comes into play. Here we're going to have, I think, our assumptions about what the church is supposed to be challenged a little bit, hopefully shaped in a more God-honoring way by this passage this morning. Paul's response is to the church, not to the man. And his response is simple. You've got to get this guy out of there. You have got to remove him from your church. Now that's where the simplicity ends. 
Because the questions start coming at us at that point. How in the world could this be right? More concretely, if the church is, if the church is a loving community, if the church is called to grace, if the church is always to be made up of sinners, if the church is called to love, that, to a love that's patient and kind and bears no record of wrongs, how can it be loving to confront sin like Paul calls for here? To kick someone out because of their sin? Isn't, isn't the essence of the gospel the promise that sins are forgiven? And if so, how can the church be called to confront sin in this way? That's the question we want to answer. That's the one we're going to focus on. How is it right? And what I, what I want us to see this morning is that it's actually our love that makes this necessary. That if we truly understand what love is, and if we truly love each other, and if we truly love our church, and if we truly love God and His glory in the world, then, then confronting sin and even sometimes removing unrepentant sinners is the loving thing to do. That's the burden for us this morning. God help us. It won't be easy to get there. We trust that he speaks through his word, that his spirit gives us clarity and, con- and, and overcomes the sort of gut reaction we often have to what's in his word. And that's what we're going to pray that he'll do for us this morning. I want to get straight to it. Uh, the first point, and this is the one I want to spend most time on this morning, is that it's actually necessary to confront sin directly if we really love each other. It's not contradictory to our love for each other. It defines our love for each other because it's the best thing for us. Now, before we get too far into this, this is going to take us into verses 3 to 5 of of chapter 5. Before we get too far into it, I think we have to talk about what we mean by love. I don't want to assume that we that we share a definition of what love is. In fact, I'm pretty sure we don't. And that our, our, our typical sense of what love is won't ever square up with what this passage calls for. I think here, here's what I think we mean. I mean, we, we use love in, in a lot of variety, in a large variety of ways, right? I say that I love key lime pie, and I mean something by that, right? Or that I love the season of fall, and I, I mean a whole host of things by that. I, I say that I love free Titans tickets, let me say that again. I love free Titans tickets, preferably to games that don't begin at noon on Sundays. What does it mean to say that I love another person? Part of it surely has to do with being drawn to something about that person, something that's true about them, to their appearance, or to their personality, or to their character. I say that I love my kids, for example. That's one of the things that I mean. That when my, I love the way my two-year-old smiles, this little gap between his first two teeth. I love this, the, the look of it when his face just transforms into that grin. I love the way my 10-month-old or 11-month-old, or however old he is now, <laughs> I, I love the way that he laughs. He doesn't laugh that often. He's not to the age yet where he laughs just to be silly. It takes something really genuine to get a laugh out of him it is completely pure and true laughter and it's this deep chuckle that he does that he doesn't come often and you have to work really hard for it but when he does there's something about it that I love I love that he's now responding to me in ways that he hasn't before that he's constantly just pointing at me from across the room he loves to point or to wave 
When I say that I love my boys, this is part of what I mean. I love things about them that are true about them, their character and their personality. And, and in that sense, love is affirmation. It's acceptance. It's, it's to see something good in the object of your love and to affirm it, to, to claim it and celebrate it. And that's one of the things the Bible often uses love for. I mean, that's a legitimate part of what it is to love. I think, though, that in our time, in our place, in our culture, that's kind of where we draw the line. Love is that and no more. To love something is to affirm it, to affirm it as good and as beautiful and right. And if that's all that love is, then it will never be loving to confront sin like this and remove somebody from your church. Because this is to not affirm, to not welcome or accept. But in the scriptures, and I think even in in our experience, love is always more complicated than just sheer affirmation. Love is also shaped by our desire to seek the good of the thing that we love. It's not just loving what's true about it, but it's wanting what's best for it. Love involves action. It involves an aim of your life to, to bring about something good in the thing that you love. I, it's because I love my son that I limit his freedom and I don't let him play in the street. I don't affirm his desire to have free reign over his life, even though his desire is intense and pervasive. Sometimes love means refusing to accept something that would harm the one I love. If love involves not just affirming them, but wanting what's best for them, then sometimes the loving thing is to refuse to accept something about someone and to work against whatever that is that's true of that person. And that's what Paul's getting at in verses 3 to 5 here. It's not, this, look, this is not a situation where someone has slipped up once, had a one-night stand with his father's wife, and is broken by it, and wanting back in, and the church says, no, you're done, you can't come back here. That, that is not what we're seeing here. What we're seeing here is someone who's dug in in their sin. They're not even remorseful at all about it. They don't see it as a problem. What they think is that they can have this identity with Jesus and have this lifestyle that they've chosen. And in that sense, in that sense, Paul calls them to remove, calls the church to remove this person because they, they are in danger of judgment. What this assumes is something the Bible is clear about all through. And all through the New Testament. And that is that when we attach to Jesus, we are changed by that attachment. Not immediately, not overnight, but there's some active power in us that the Bible identifies with the Spirit of God that changes what we love over time, that makes us hate sin and and refuse to tolerate it in ourselves as it's revealed to us. And this person is not showing that they have that in them. They're dug in as if it's no problem. And that means to Paul, what that tells Paul is that they're in danger of being judged at the final day by God himself because they look like they're not attached to Jesus at all. They're on their own. And that's what he's not willing to let stand for their good. Now, I don't want you to take my my word for this. I want to walk you quickly through the details of verses 3 to 5 and show you where I'm getting this. Paul, Paul is telling the church to remove this person because they love this person and that we will take sin seriously and confront it in, our, in, in each other if we really... Love each other. So let me go ahead and say there are plenty of mysterious things about verses 3 to 5 in this chapter. uh, But I think the basics boil down to this. Two things that Paul says in these three verses. 
He tells the church to deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That's thing number one. And thing number two is that the reason they should do this is so that his soul might be saved. For all the mystery that we're not going to get into in these verses, the basics are, Paul tells them to get rid of the guy, to deliver him to Satan, to destroy his flesh, so that, and the reason is, so that he might be saved ultimately at the final day. And I want to unpack these two things. Uh, delivering the man to Satan, that's a strange phrase. There's always been some disagreement among Christians about what it means. Uh, the best explanation that, that I've read is that it refers to the kingdom that's outside of the church. So one of the ways the, ch- the New Testament loves to talk about the church and its relationship to what isn't the church is in this kingdom language. That Christ came to establish a kingdom that's already here partly, And it's coming fully one day in the new heavens and the new earth. But now, during this time, there's two kingdoms in play. There's there's the kingdom of Christ that's represented in the church. And then there's everything else. So think about it in the U.S. For example, we have reservations for Native Americans on which that is sovereign soil. They're they're regarded as as independent nations. That's how they can have casinos, for example. Uh, but, But off the reservation, you're not allowed to. Or think about an embassy that's in a foreign country. Like that is soil of, the, ho- of the, the, the home country, not the host country. It is sovereign soil. There are two nations at play right there in the same spot. and That's the way that New Testament pictures the church. In hostile territory, so to speak. There's the kingdom of Christ and there's the kingdom of Satan. The powers of evil reign there. So in that sense, what it would mean to deliver a person to Satan is just another way of saying the same thing that Paul says in verse 2. And in verse 13, which is you're supposed to take him out of the church. It's a synonymous statement. It means put him out of the church. And, and what he hopes will happen by putting this guy out of the church is that his flesh will be destroyed. I don't think that means literally he's going to die. It, flesh is often used in the New Testament as a way of talking about that bent in us away from God and towards ourselves. The thing in us that drives us to, to satisfy ourselves and instead of submit to God and his authority over us. And... Paul sees putting him out of the church as a kind of wake-up call. That if we, sort of, if we give this guy over to what he already wants, that he will see the implications of it. That it will spiral him to, the, to a low point that will break him. It will destroy that fleshly bent in him and wake him up to how badly he really needs Jesus. If he's allowed to stay in the church at the same time that he's living for himself, then he might be more easily deceived about where he stands. But by putting him out, it might wake him up Shake him out of his commitment to, to, him, to himself over against God. I think that's what Paul's saying by delivering him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What's even more clear is what Paul wants to gain by it. He thinks this is a step towards this guy being saved. That for him to be saved by Jesus at the last day, he needs to be put out now. So it's ultimately about his love. It's, it's, it's the way to love this man well. Here's the way one writer put it. The man needs to be purged, lest cheap forgiveness or benign neglect lull him into thinking that all things are permissible and he ends up being banished from God's presence in the final judgment. Another image I came across in reading this week was an image for what's going on here. What Paul's calling for is a judgment to be made, right, of this guy. And he's already told us before that the only judgment that really matters is God's judgment of you. Paul says, I don't really care what you think about me. I don't really care what I think about me. The Lord judges me, and that's what matters. It might seem a little out of step for him to be calling on the church to pass judgment on this guy here, right? But 
I think this verse points us to the fact that Paul is still really concerned, mostly concerned about God's judgment of this guy. And that this guy looks like he's going to be judged for his sin, not for Jesus' righteousness. And so what needs to happen is a, is a play. This is the image that came up in, in uh, one, one of the books I read this week. What Paul's calling for is kind of like a play that gives a vivid picture of what will happen on the last day by the church judging this person, putting them out of the church for their, for their unremorseful commitment to sin. They give them a picture of what will happen from God on the final day when all things are judged if they don't repent. And by that picture, by that play, they're meant to shake this person out of their apathy and into a clear sense of where they stand. Now, now I wanna, before we move on, I want to acknowledge there is some tension here between this principle that we're unpacking and what we talked about last week. Uh, last week, I think all of us would have taken as an encouragement. Paul saying, you don't worry about what other people think about you. Just stop being obsessed with what people think about you. And just trust that God is for you in Christ and be free. There's freedom in that. All of us, I think, love to hear that. But here we have all this language of judgment. Paul himself saying, I've already judged this guy. And you should too. And it's tough to know how to balance those two. How to balance our our desire to attach to Jesus and the judgment that's made of him, but this calling to judge each other's lives in some sense. I think we've got to be really careful. I think, I, think, I think the beauty of this passage is that it balances what we looked at last week, which could be dangerous to us. I mean, there's a way to hear what we heard last week in chapter 4 of this letter, that, where Paul says, don't worry about what other people think about you. Don't be obsessed with what you think about you. Focus on what God says about you in Christ and be free. There's a danger in that freedom if it leads us to sort of not really pay attention to our lives, to feel like we maybe don't need other people to be speaking into our lives, to be comfortable with where we are in Christ and therefore be a sort of man on an island. You could go that way to where you just don't care about what your friends think. Ironically, the promise of the gospel and and the affirmation that's ours there if we overemphasize it, if we talk about our security too much, then it could just become a way of feeling better about yourself. And that's it. A sort of salve for wounds that doesn't ever allow you to see underlying issues that God wants to deliver you from. The promise of the gospel is not just that you are accepted by God in Christ despite your sin. The promise of the gospel is also that in Jesus, the power of sin over you has been broken and the spirit has been given to you to change what you love and you have been placed into a community of people that are creating a new culture that will show for the world what Jesus loves, what he looks like, that will show them what the kingdom of God is all about. That's part of the gospel's promise too. And if you just lock in, on the security that's promised to you in Jesus, and you don't see that it's meant to change you, then you could be deceived. You could be in danger of judgment. And maybe that's exactly what had happened to this man. That he thought, God is for me in Christ. So what does it matter what I do with my body? My soul will be saved. My body is irrelevant. Maybe that's what he thought. The church is here to 
to wake him up from that. And it's here to wake us up too. Ultimately, we, one of the main ways that we serve each other as Christians, specifically as members of a church, is to love each other well enough to observe each other's lives and in love and with trust and no sense of judgmentalism to point out to each other areas where we could be more submissive to Jesus and his rule over us. Ultimately, we're all deceived. I mean, sin's still in us. It colors how we see things. And so if, if, if our assessment of ourselves is all we have to go on, we're going to be in trouble. What we need is each other looking at us. We, we, I, I need you guys looking at my life in love so that you can point out to me areas that I haven't noticed where my life isn't submitting to Jesus. Now, now to connect last week and this week one more time, The only way you can possibly survive in a culture, a local church, where we're speaking into each other's lives that way is if you are really confident in who you are in Christ. And here's where this balance is important, right? The only thing that's going to make you able to hear someone else observe something about you that isn't what it should be is if you trust that Jesus has once and for all established you as acceptable to God by what he's done. That gives you a centeredness or a grounding that allows you to hear and not be threatened by, to hear as good news and as helpful things that people might say about your life. You're not, you're not swayed by it. You're not sent into despair by it. You're not up in arms over what they've said to you because you are comfortable and confident in Christ and in who you are in Him. These two things go hand in hand. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 have to go together. It's easier said than done. It's only possible by God's power. The, basic is, the basics are this. Giving and receiving challenges about sin in our lives is how we love each other well. We're in a war. A war against sin and the flesh and the devil. And we are hopeless in this war unless we have each other. We'd be fools not to fight together. That's the first thing that I want to draw out of this passage for us. The second is this. How can it possibly be loving to confront sin like Paul's calling for here? And the second thing is, I think we've got to confront sin like this if we truly love the church body. Not just if we truly love each other as individuals, but if we truly love the church body, this is what we have to do to take sin seriously. The body is one of the main images for the church in the New Testament. It's one that Paul uses later on in this letter. It's a great way, the body image is a great way of showing how we're all affected by and attached to each other. That what happens to one part of the body happens to all of the body. And if I stub my toe, it's not, the pain is not isolated there. It shoots up through my body, right? Everything is infected by it. We're all attached to each other in the body. And this, at this point, we want to talk about the church body. But admittedly, where Paul goes in verses 6 to 8 is away from the image of the body. He's going to do that later. He uses the image of a lump of dough and of the place of leaven inside the lump of dough. Now, um, I'm not a baker. I don't fully understand how it works, but apparently leaven is, is similar to yeast in, in the way that it functions, and it, uh, part of it would be, it would be like a, a, a piece of dough that would be left out for a while or something and then added into a new loaf to give it more life. I don't exactly know how it, how, how it all works, but I do know that it was a powerful image of purity in the rituals of Israel, that in some of their rituals, especially in Passover, this ritual that looked back to when God saved them from Egypt... It was important to them to 
picture the purity of God's people set apart from the, the other nations that were surrounding them by the bread that they ate. That was the way God established it, as a picture. So they were to eat unleavened bread. And now in this, in this image, Paul uses that lump of dough as a, an image for the whole community and how it's supposed to be pure. It's supposed to be unleavened. And it really, it boils down to what he says in, in verses 6 and 7. If you let old leaven, bad leaven, diseased leaven pervade your body, it spreads like a disease. That one person in your body's sin is not just isolated to that person. It attaches itself to the whole community. And I don't think it does that by a sort of, in a sort of guilt by association. You know, because you did this, then I'm also guilty of it. But it spreads more like a disease. I think we've seen this happen. You, you're shaped by the people that you spend time around, right? By your community or your culture. The people that you spend time around shape what you like, what you enjoy, how you see the world, how you talk. We're all attached to, to, to different groups, and those groups end up affecting us. So by allowing sin unremorseful sin to stay in their church body, what the, the danger was that it would spread like a disease through the church and end up infecting others. Here's the way one writer put it. The man's sin was a single serious infection, but the church's lack of discipline, a complete failure of the immune system. That's the danger here. By not addressing or confronting this sin, by it, maybe even from the language here, being arrogant about it, boasting in it, and their sort of freedom and their tolerance. This church's immune system had collapsed. And what they were in danger of was this guy's tolerance of sin so spreading through the culture so that they just don't care about what they do with their bodies. What Paul's calling for here is a new culture, a culture of positive influence on each other that's shaped by a new leaven. A new spreading influence. And what he's saying, what he says is tied directly to Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. What he's saying is, you really are pure already because Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And by his sacrifice, God has made you pure. That's who you already are. So now live like that. Now be what he's already declared you to be through Jesus' death. And the way that we live that way is as a group, as a culture. He says you're supposed to celebrate the festival. That's a beautiful image. It's tied to Passover, but the point is, you're supposed to live your life together as a church, as a celebration of all that Jesus has done for us. He has died, and you are pure. So live in celebration of this new identity. It's supposed to change what you want, and how you treat each other, and how you interface with the rest of the world. Your life is supposed to celebrate what he's done. That's the point. Christ has been sacrificed. So as a community, as a new culture, we celebrate not with the old leaven or the old way of life as if we weren't pure in Christ, as if Jesus' death hasn't done anything. We're not going to accept that old leaven as if Jesus' death was meaningless. We're going we're to replace malice and evil with sincerity and truth. And as God's Spirit changes us, we will display for the world what his death has actually done. It has made us new. That's what Paul's calling for. And if we truly love the church body, we'll give everything to that vision of what our life will look like together. And we will not fail to confront sin when it's unrepented of in our midst. Now here's the last thing. We will confront sin seriously in the way that Paul describes if we truly love God and His glory. In the final paragraph, 
uh, Paul confronts, this is in verses, uh, verses 9 to 13, it seems like he's writing to correct a misperception from one of his earlier letters. We don't know what he, what he said in this letter. It's lost. But he says what I wrote to, about what I wrote to you before. Somehow word has trickled back that they were missing the point. And what he wants to clarify for them is what it looks like, what it really means to take sin seriously as a church and to isolate yourself from it. Because it seems like maybe what they were thinking was, if they took sin seriously, some, some people in, among them maybe, were thinking, well, we just can't associate with anybody, right? If, if it means that we can't be around people who are swindlers or greedy or sexually immoral or whatever, then, then, um, then, then who can we be around? You know, does the church have to be this perfectly pure and isolated Amish-style community? Paul's saying, no. I didn't mean that you can't associate with people who are swindlers or greedy or revilers or sexually immoral who are out there. Because otherwise you'd have to leave the world. And Jesus put us in this world to be a witness to him. How could we witness to them of what Jesus is like unless we're still among them? That's not Paul's issue. It's not about avoiding the taint of sin. Their biggest struggle, their biggest, uh, their, their biggest threat is not what the world does in its sin. It's what's inside them. They are the biggest threat to their ability to live in the way they're supposed to. He says, what, what I mean is, you're not to tolerate or associate with those who are claiming to be Christians, who are inside the church body, but living as if Jesus doesn't make any difference at all. Paul's not talking about those outside the church. Their lifestyles aren't the responsibility of the church. How can we expect those who don't believe in Jesus to live as if they cared what Jesus thought? We can't. The key is the name and the identity of Jesus. Ultimately, what Paul's talking about here, in this distinction between, I'm not not talking about the, the sins of the world, I'm talking about sins in the church. He's getting at something under the surface here that's essential for us to understand about the purpose of the church. See, what the church is, is, is doing here is providing a little picture for the world of what the kingdom of God is like. And that means it represents God and his character in the world. And that means the church should take it really seriously what kind of message it's sending by the way that it lives together to the world that, that looks at it, that's watching. So the church's job is to supervise the message about God's character that the world sees. And so to live just like everybody else, as if Jesus doesn't make any difference, is to say to the world, God doesn't care. This new kingdom, not much different from the old kingdom. The name of God is at stake in the quality of the church's life. That's the point. And the reason Paul tells them to stop associating someone who's trying to claim that they represent Jesus is that we can't afford to have the world look at that person and say, if that's all that Jesus is about, I don't want anything to do with it. This is a real live issue. And maybe for some of you even in this room, in your past. I, I uh, last week had a great uh, conversation with Rick Crump, who's a new member here at Trinity, been with us for a while, and um, and, and has already just been such a positive influence on so many of you, I know. And we were talking about his story, his conversion, how he came to know Jesus because they were becoming members at Trinity last week. And one of the things that stuck out to me about his story as I was also thinking ahead to chapter 5 here in 1 Corinthians is, is one of the things that drove Rick away 
from the gospel early on. So as a, as a young man, he was working in radio and was working around religious broadcasters who were basically, I don't want to put words in his mouth, this is my summary of what Rick told me, were basically just in it for the buck, right? They were trying to get people's money. They were swindlers. They were just, I mean, in the categories of 1 Corinthians 5, they were swindlers, and that's all they cared about. They were claiming to represent Jesus, but he, as a, as a, not a non-follower of Jesus, looked at them and said, if that is what Jesus is about, then I don't need him. It took years for Rick to have his view of what Christians really were about recalibrated when he was welcomed into a new community that took Jesus and his commands seriously. Folks, that, that, is, that is true for every church in every place in America. We represent Jesus to those who know we own his name. And the church's job, if we really love God and his reputation in the world, is to give as accurate a display of his character as we possibly can. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It means that we recognize when we're not perfect, that we're sorrowful over it, that we try to repent of it, that we try to tell people, that is not what he's like. Forgive me. I have failed to be what he should be. Jesus is there for me because I am a failure, and he will be there for you too if you will trust in him when you fail. Now, my time is gone, and I realize that, that we've really only scratched the surface here, maybe even raised more questions than we've answered. I, I just want to point you to one thing to close. I hope it's clear that this passage we've looked at is not talking about what has to be true of you before you're fit to come to Jesus. It does not say that you've got to get your sin under control before Jesus will love you. The message of the gospel is that Jesus will forgive you despite your sin. That you can come to him now, this minute, friends, if you will, and he will receive you. Jesus came for sinners, and the miracle of God's grace is that through Jesus, no matter what you've done, I don't, I don't care what you've done, no matter who you are, you are accepted and approved of by the God who made you if you trust in Christ. There's no precondition other than trust in what Jesus has done. Jesus has lived the life you should have. And he's died the death that you were supposed to die. And because he has, there is freedom for you if you'll claim it by faith. But you need to know this. Coming to Christ is to come to a new master. You are going to serve somebody with your life. And to this point, whatever it might have looked like, you've been serving yourself. And if you come to Christ, you need to know that it means dying to yourself so that you can really live. It means a life committed to a search and destroy mission, rooting out anything that's left in you that resists Jesus' loving rule over you. It doesn't mean that you will ever be free from sin. You will not. But we are called to a battle that Jesus is giving us power to fight. And we're called to do it together. You'd be crazy to try to do this alone. Our Father knows that we aren't okay on our own. That's why he's given us each other. That's why he's given us this church. So here's the key. I want you to walk with this. Our church is not a place for those who don't sin. Our church is a place for those who fight sin. 
The difference between the world outside the church and the church is not that one is full of sinners and the other one isn't. Both full of sinners. All of us are sinners. We always will be. The difference is that one is full of sinners who embrace their sin. That's the world. And the other is full of sinners who are committed to fighting their sin together. That's the church. God help us. Father, we so want to represent you well, and we can't. We are helpless to do it on our own. Your promises are sweet to us. They promise that you don't hold our sins against us and that you won't hold our weakness against us either. We claim those promises this morning and ask for your spirit to change us. And we ask that you would help us to reflect you as a community and not just as individuals. We want to love each other well by taking sin seriously, by living open lives before each other that are confident in Jesus and who we are in him so we, don't, we aren't threatened by others seeing our sin and pointing it out so that we can fight it better. We have no reason to fear because we are yours. We want to live lives together that celebrate the feast that celebrate what Jesus has done for us by his death, that picture the purity that is made possible by him. And we can't unless you give us power for it. So help us, Father, glorify yourself by our church and our commitment to fighting sin together, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.